Oh, those ages three and seven dismissed the junior church. And there's clipboards up here for eight and nine-year-olds. I don't know if you guys have ever had this desire <clears throat> to go down to Niagara Falls to get down past the safety bars, walk down along the very edge, and just to plunge yourselves underneath the torrent of water coming over the edge. Raise your hand if you've ever just wanted to be pummeled by Niagara Falls. Anybody? No. I was watching... A short clip, a little science clip on what would happen if you were there when they dropped an atomic bomb. <clears throat> How many of you have ever thought to yourself, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to be there when they drop an atomic bomb. I'd like to stare directly into the light that would immediately blind me and then wait till the heat came rolling in and just evaporated me. Raise your hand if you've ever wanted to do that. <clears throat> Never, nobody, ever in their right mind has ever wanted to be there. However, the weirdest thing happens in Christianity sometimes is all these people praying, God, I would love to be in your presence. Which is more powerful, the atomic bomb or God? And yet these weird groups sometimes, and sometimes we've asked ourselves, God, I want you to show up right here in all your glory. If God showed up right here in all of his glory, you would die immediately. You would be crushed by the weight of who he is, by the power of who he is. It's uncontainable. In scripture, he's shrouded by vision. He's shrouded by people in their dreams. He's shrouded by even himself putting us, Moses in the cleft of the rock and saying, I'll pass by, you'll see the backside of me, but you cannot bear to see all of me. Right? But so many times it's flippant. God, I wish you were here. I wish you were right here. I wish I could see you in all that you are. But all that he is would be overwhelming were it not for the grace of God and our glorified bodies, which he promises to give us in the future. We can't bear it in our sinful state. There are a few people in Scripture who have had the opportunity, like we talked about, to be seen and to see God, as close as God would allow, as much as God would allow that they wouldn't die from what they see. And one of these places is found in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is living in a time where King Uzziah has been reigning, and he's been doing a great job up until recently. Their military is a great power, their land is flourishing pretty well. Uh, but Uzziah doesn't just want to be king. He also wants to be priest. And so he goes into the inner place where the priests are supposed to be, and he burns some incense. And because of that, God gives him leprosy. And after that, it's just downhill for him until his son takes over. 
So this is the context. The nation has been doing fairly well. It's starting to take a dive because after the wealth and prosperity and people just wanting more, they start to forget about God. They start to bring in idols. And in the year that King Uzziah dies is when this is written. This is how it starts. In the year the king Uzziah died, he says this, I saw the Lord He was sitting upon a throne and he was high and he was lifted up. This is an important phrase to just stop and ponder. What is Isaiah saying here? He's saying in the year when the most powerful king, 52 years of reign for Judah, Uzziah had been on the throne. In the year that the people were crying for their king, were wondering what would happen next. Isaiah saw God, and he was high, and he was lifted up. He's not trembling. He's seated on a throne. He's not pacing. God's not worried. Oh, no, Uzziah just died. What will we do next? It's just God. He's high. He's seated. He's lifted up. He's calm. He's above all other kings, all other gods, looking down on all other thrones. He's holier than everyone, set apart, far away. He says this about him as well. The train of his robe fills the temple. This is important for two different reasons. Number one reason is known by like every quilter ever, right? You get together quirky hobbies and half the time you talk about how expensive your fabric was, right? There we are sitting at the table. You should see how expensive this was. Or you would not believe what a great deal I got at the garage sale. I have $5,000 worth of fabric sitting in my purse right here. You would not believe it. I got it for 50 cents. $5,000 worth of fabric, right? This is the thing. What he's saying is the, the robe was so big, so costly, so expensive, it filled the whole temple. This is how great God is. Notice too, when we talk about glory, and I've made this point before, is the glory of God is always a piece of God representing how much greater he is, right? So my friend Linda in here, not to point fingers, but she writes children's books. The glory of Linda, who she is, is in her books. Not all of it. Her book can't contain it. A part of it is in there. Her creativity is greater than that one book. But this one book shows a little piece of that, right? The pews in here were made by somebody. They're a small piece of that person that shows the glory of that person. The train of God's robe that filled the temple is a part of how majestic he is. And nobody has a robe like that. Because he's holier than everyone. Completely different than everyone. Greater than everyone. Not only that, but I actually preached this sermon at Miracle Mountain. And a woman came up to me afterwards and she said, I thought you were going a different direction with this robe thing. I was like, okay, where else would you go with the robe thing? She said, well, did you know that back in the day, when the kings would war, they would defeat a nation, and when they defeated that nation, they would cut off a part of that robe from the defeated king, and they would attach that to their robe. And 
at that moment, I was like, well, I've never heard of that, but maybe it's true. But none of the commentaries I read put that in there, so I don't know about that so far. So I went back and researched it, and sure enough, that's what they would do. They would say, this country that we just seized is now mine. I attach that to my robe, and it gets bigger and bigger the more wins you get. So God, whose robe fills the temple, is extravagant. It's wealth, but it's also power. That he is the king above all kings, lord of all lords, ruler of all rulers. He is the greatest one. He would take a piece of fabric from every robe because every nation is his. Right? Kings are just playing dress up. But God is the one who owns everything, all that there is. So he saw the Lord seated high on a throne, still in control, still in charge, even though King Uzziah dies. The train of his robe, he fills the temple. Above him, I love this part, stood the seraphim. I don't know how he knows what they are. I don't think he's ever seen them before. So God is inspiring. He was telling him, these are seraphim. Isaiah, have you ever gone into any court, anywhere, and seen seraphim? Above a throne. No. Because God is holier than everyone. It's funny, whenever you go into meet royalty, right? Let's say the president or someone is going to speak somewhere. Who do they bring in? They bring in the best of the best orchestra. The wealthiest of the wealthy might come. Kings would have the best harp players there. The best instrumentalists, right? The most powerful soldiers, A leader of a thousand men would be there, whatever it is. None of them have ever said, have you seen my seraphim? Because God is holier than all of them. He is greater than all of them. He's set apart. He's not like his creation. He's outside of his creation. He creates seraphim. No other king ever done that. But not only that. Each seraphim, they have six wings. And these wings serve a purpose. Right, kings, they can tell you, don't look at me in the eyes, right? But these seraphim were actually created to have wings specifically to hide their eyes from looking at the glory of God. And two, to cover their feet because of their uncleanness. And two, to fly and to serve and to do whatever the bidding is of their God. No king has created someone to serve them in such a way. Because God is holier than everyone. Completely different than all other kings. Greater than all other kings. He fashioned every king. He fashions the poor. He fashions the bug. He fashions the wind to go where he pleases it to go. The leaves to fall where he says fall. The birds to fly where he says fly. And the seraphim to cover when he says cover. Verse 3, one called to the other and said this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. God is not just holy. This is important as well. If you read through scripture, you'll see there's a holy place. There are holy items in the temple. There's a people set apart to God who are holy. His chosen people are holy. We are holy because God has made us holy if we trust in Christ. 
But God is thrice holy, right? So we might say uh, someone is good, someone is really good, someone is really, really good. But God is holy, which is the pinnacle, but then he's holy, but then he's also holy is the point. He's not like these holy things. He's not like these holy people. He's so outside because he's not created. He's always been. He always is. He always will be. So he is holy, holy. The pinnacle of holiness is God, is what they're saying. And they're saying that the whole earth is full of his glory. There's not one place where his glory is not hidden. Where can you go on a created earth that you can get away from what God has created? Nowhere. You can be floating in space, but the God who created space, you'll see his glory there in the stars. In the gravitation-less floating of your life, you'll see the glory there. Every place that you go, God's glory is. And we talked about this once before as well, as, as I was studying for this at Miracle Mountain, just the fact that an atheist, someone who does not believe in God, whether they like it or not, is declaring the glory of God just by existing. The atheist walks around day after day declaring the glory of God by holding a cup in their hand, by drinking the water that he's given, by breathing the air that's balanced perfectly by the trees that God has made to take their carbon dioxide and create oxygen. And when the rain falls both on the just and the unjust and the atheist puts up his umbrella, he's declaring the glory of God and the creation of the umbrella. The God would create creatures who could be so creative that they could come up with that thing. And more. The whole earth is full of his glory. How many kings can say that the whole earth is full of my glory? None. I can go into a cave and the glory of that king is not there. But if I go into a cave, the glory of God is there. Because God is holier than everyone. He is holy, holy, holy. This is the God that Isaiah serves. It's interesting too because this Isaiah 6 is actually, um, all of this would have been before 1 through 5. But this is like a recap. This is what happened that I started preaching all of this. This is what happened before I went out and shared this message with all of you. I saw God high, lifted up, seated on a throne. Seraphim were behind him. His robe filled the temple. And the seraphim were saying, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold, they shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. I think some of your translation says uh, they spoke or they, their voices, and that's fine either way. So should God speak, the houses will shake, and that happens other places in Scripture. But even the seraphim, should he give them the power to do so when they speak, the place shakes. Just like the men marching around Jericho, blowing on their trumpets. When's the last time that ever knocked down a wall? Only once that I know of. Because it's not the power of the trumpet or the power of the seraphim, it's the power of God that shakes the temple. 
No one in the world, no king, how great he is, has ever made his voice project so loudly and so perfectly that the whole foundation would shake. You might be able to break a wine glass with your voice. I've seen it done on YouTube. Believe everything you see on YouTube. But it has been done. But to shake a foundation with your voice, impossible. There is no one like our God because he is holy, holy, holy. He's holier than everyone. And just the mere voice of God is enough to shake the ground. Even the voice of his creation, should he allow it to shake the ground. The whole house was filled with smoke. God is holier than everyone. And this is Isaiah's reaction to seeing all this. I said, woe to me. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's a strange reaction, but not so strange when you do it like this. Have you ever gotten yourself up in the morning and you're looking pretty good? You're feeling pretty good about yourself. And then you go out and you see someone else who looks so much better than you. And now you're like, what was me? <laughs> I am undone for I got a mole the size of Texas or whatever it is. Right? You thought you were doing great until you saw the more beautiful thing. See, Isaiah thought he was doing pretty great. He's the prophet. He's the man. He's, he's able to go in and out and talk with kings. Right? People revere him. He sees God and he says, what? Woe is me. I should be killed. I, should be und- I am undone. Anything I thought was good in myself is gone. Because I've seen the holiest one. All his ways are perfect, not just his looks. All his money more than me. Have you ever thought, I got some money in the bank account. And you feel good. Until you meet somebody who's got more. And then you're like, man, I am not doing as good as I thought. Right? There's this thing when you meet the one who is great. But what is it when you meet the one who is greatest? Then how do you feel? I am ugly. I am not smart. I am weak, not powerful, like God. He is holy, holy, holy. You've all felt it, just a taste of it in those situations. R.C. Sproul, he comments on this passage. He's a famous preacher, for those of you who don't know him yet. He's also passed away. He says this. He says, this is the first prophetic utterance of Isaiah. And the first prophetic utterance of Isaiah is his own damnation. That he is not worthy to preach. He is not worthy to speak. He is not worthy to stand before God. And he deserves anything that might come next. He says this, right? I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Why such a focus on the lips? On the mouth? I think uh, all throughout scripture, you'll see some of this, and you'll see it in uh, the New Testament especially, right? 
In James chapter 3, it says this, We all stumble in, in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. He's able to bridle his whole body. Right? A lot of us have pretty good self-control. The hardest thing to control oftentimes is our mouths, what we say. Man, we love that gossip, right? We get angry and that one word shoots out. And even if it surprises us, we're like, oh, I should not have said that. Right? And scripture is very clear. If you can control this thing, you can control your whole body. And Isaiah is a person who's spread a lot of words around. And I think he knows. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim, he flew to me. He had in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. This is verse 6 and verse 7. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, so your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. At the moment of Isaiah's despair and his condemnation, who is it that goes into action? Isaiah does not forgive himself. He does not atone for himself. It's God. He provides the messenger. He provides the fire. He provides the coal. He provides the tongs. He placed the remedy in exactly the right place at exactly the right time for Isaiah to do exactly what he wanted him to do. How much holier is God than us? How many of you have had a conversation with anybody? They tell you their problem and you tell them the solution to their problem. They might even try and do your solution to the problem and guess what? It does not always work out. Because you don't know exactly what somebody needs at exactly the right time. Does somebody need to be told, hey, get up and dust yourself off, you'll be just fine? Or do they need a hug? I don't know. God does. Because he's holier than all of us. He's better than all of us. This is why we go to scripture to see what does this person need? What kind of counsel? Does he need a rebuke? Does he need encouragement? Does he need prayer? What does he need? But God knows exactly what Isaiah needs and exactly what you need right now and every day. Exactly what it is. He's holier. He's the great savior that knows exactly what we need. <clears throat> After Isaiah sees all of this, all this overwhelming glory of God, he doesn't say then, hey, you know what I should do? I should go out to these people. No, because he's already undone until God heals him, heals his mouth, heals his lips. Your guilt, his guilt was taken away and his sin was atoned for. And then look what happens. He goes from a man being undone to this. I heard a voice of the Lord. He was saying this, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. Two seconds ago, or however long, two minutes, half hour, whatever it took to get the coals to his mouth, he wasn't ready to go anywhere. He was just ready to die. That was it. I, I'm useless to this holy God. Absolutely useless. But then his guilt is taken away. Freedom is found in his life. God has atoned for him. And he says, 
Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Here I am. Send me, Isaiah says. I felt your forgiveness and your grace. My guilt is gone. My sin atoned for. I've seen your power and your majesty that I thought was against me. And now that I know that it's for me, I will go for you. I'm not afraid of you or your punishment anymore because you've come and you've forgiven my sins. You've cleansed me. And now you send me out with your entire throne behind me, with your seraphim behind me, with your lords, with all your hosts behind me. I'll go. Here I am. Send me. God says, okay. But here's what you're going to have to say. Go and say to this people this. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. I don't think that's the message Isaiah was ready to give. He had just had his guilt taken away. He had just had his sins atoned for and he didn't get to go out with that message. Instead it was, keep on hearing, but you're never going to hear. Keep on seeing, but you're never going to see. Your heart's not even going to care about God. And in fact, he even has to say at the end, they might understand with their hearts if they hear and see. And they might even be turned and be healed, but that's not what God's intentions are. This is the hard part about this passage, I would say. The rest we like. God's big. He's powerful. We like all those things. He's on my side. Great. He wants to forgive me. Love it. God does not save everybody. That's hard. Really hard. God is holy, holy, holy. Not like us. He does whatever he wants. He's wiser than us. He created everything. He's not like us. Who can talk back to God? Who can answer to God and say, why have you made me like this? What right does the clay have to say to the potter? Anything. This is the hard part. If he wants people to save for himself, then he will. And if he does not, he will make them blind, deaf, dull of heart, hard of hearts. You'll see this passage actually multiple times in the New Testament, straight out of this passage right here. And what is that? This is Jesus preaching to crowds of people, and he talks to them in parables. And the disciples are like, "Uh, we heard you talk in parables. We didn't understand a thing that you said. And he will say, I did that to hide that from them so they wouldn't hear and possibly believe. The possibly believe part is hard um, because we might say to ourselves, well, God didn't want them to hear because if they heard and they still didn't believe, then they would just heap more condemnation on themselves. Hell would be hotter. So maybe God was just giving them mercy, protecting them from the flames. And that's why he didn't want them to see. He didn't want them to hear. And that could all be true for some and for some not true because it says specifically here, they might understand, they might hear, and they might believe and God doesn't want them to. 
They've already turned to their idols. They've already turned to their sins. They've already gone the other way. And if you don't like it, too bad. God does whatever he wants. That is the definition of God. Here's the thing about God. With God, God gets to do whatever he wants. And I was telling my Sunday school class this morning with Gracie and Kendra, God gets to do whatever he wants, and whatever he wants to do is right. The difference between us and God, one of the many, is that we want to do a lot of things, and they're not all right. But whatever God wants to do is right. He has never wanted to do something that is wrong. Should he want to wipe out a city? That's right. Should he want to forgive one? That's right. Should he want to forgive the most wicked person on earth? So be it. That's his prerogative. And it's right. God is holier than everyone. You, me, set apart, above us all. Not created, not tired, not weak, no shady motives. They're all right. Isaiah hears the first message he's supposed to speak. And he's like, okay, so you want me to tell this to like four people? Maybe like for just a second. I'll walk into town, I'll say that, and then I'll quit. And then I'll give him the good news. So he says in verse 11, Then I said, I said, How long, O Lord? And God said this, Until the cities lie in waste without inhabitants. And houses without people, the land a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, maybe Isaiah's waiting to say, okay, a tenth remain in it, then you're going to stop? He doesn't. It will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. So God says, I chop down the tree and I burn the stump to the ground. God's wrath is different than ours as well. This is important to understand. Our wrath oftentimes comes from selfish motives. I pour out my wrath on my children because I just want some peace and quiet. God is not like that. He's ultimately patient, ultimately kind, ultimately forgiving. Scripture says his love endures forever. forever. His forgiveness from generation to generation to generation, right? This is who God is. So when God pours out his wrath, he's not flying off the handle. It's controlled. It's precise. It's just. It's perfectly placed. And so this nation, again, whether we like it or not, whether we understand all the ins and outs or not, needed to be destroyed. It needed to be because it was, and we know that. But the passage ends like this. This is important as we head into Christmas, or just head into any day of the year. But the holy seed is its stump. There's always this hope in Scripture from Genesis all the way to the end, that there's the someone who's coming, the seed that's left over, Right? But the serpent would bruise her heel, but the man would crush the serpent's head. Here, too, the holy seed is a stump. There will be some people left over. Those people will have children. Those children will have children. Those children will have children. 
and then have a son. And the son will be Jesus. Jesus, who will save their people from their sins, is his name. At the very beginning, I said, you know, who in their right mind would stand under Niagara Falls just to feel the force? Who in their right mind would stand before a nuclear bomb as it goes off? There is one person, and that is Jesus Christ. This is what he does. He comes into this world as a child. The God who is holy, 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 set apart, seated on a throne. The long robe that fills the temple. The voice that goes out and speaks and the foundation shake. Becomes a baby. Able to be bruised, to be dropped, has to be carried. Is hungry, thirsty. This is what God becomes. He grows, he's mocked. He's not attractive. We were reading my Sunday school class on Isaiah 53. There's nothing about him that draws us to him. He is despised. He's called a man of sorrows is who he is, this Jesus. He left that security, that throne, that place to live the perfect life on earth. Never lying, never stealing, never lusting. Everything he wanted to do, he did, and everything he did was right. This Jesus. But then for us, for sinners, he bore the wrath of God on the cross. The people got to see the nails, and the people got to see the blood, and the people got to see the whipping, and the people got to see the crown of thorns. But what you did not get to see is the wrath of God being poured down the throat of Christ. That he would drink the cup of God's wrath, scripture talks about, like a tidal wave like a tsunami, like a bomb going off. Jesus saw what he had to do, and he said, I will do it. I'll do it because I love my Father, and I will do it because I love his people. He came into this earth. God is holier than everyone. Christ holier than everyone to give up all those things. We would barely give up the comfort of our couches for a lot of these things. But Christ gave up the comfort of perfect union with God in heaven to never suffer. No king has ever bore a greater wrath than our God has. No king has ever conquered death like ours has. And he is holier than everyone, and we should worship him. And that's what I wanted to preach out of Isaiah today. and I think um, I'll stay in Isaiah and look at the passages that speak of Christ and his coming into this world. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your goodness to us. We should have borne the weight of our own sins a long time ago. We are the men and women of unclean lips. We live amongst the people of unclean lips, and yet you came into our world to forgive sinners, to give us your righteousness, to give us your peace, to give us your comfort. God, you love to save the worst kinds of sinners. God, help us to trust you. Help us to worship you. Help us to see you as I... Isaiah did, high and lifted up, seated on the throne. With that knowledge, with our sins forgiven, 
with our guilt taken away, that we would go out then and preach, that we would share the goodness of God, that wrath is coming unless you repent and put your faith and your trust and your hope in what Christ has done for you, that you could be saved from the wrath to come. I pray that we would go out with that in mind, that we would rest only in you, find our peace only in you, our comfort only in you, and you alone, and then we can stand against the tide. In Christ's name, amen. Turn your hymn books to 97. I am the Lord's. Sing this together on the third or fourth verse. The deacons can come and get ready for communion. Number 97. I am the Lord's, O joy beyond expression. Oh, sweet response to voice of love divine. Faith joyous, yes, to the assuring whisper. Fear not, I have redeemed thee, thou art mine. I am the Lord's, it is the glad confession. Wherewith the bride recalls the happy day when loves I will accepted him forever, the Lord's to love, to honor, and obey. I am the Lord, yet teach me all it meaneth. All it involves of love and loyalty, of holy service, absolute surrender, and unreserved obedience unto Thee. I am the Lord, just body, soul, and spirit, all Forever I am thine, as thou beloved in thy grace and fullness, forever and forevermore art thine. As I heard message want to remember this morning is that's exactly the God that you remember. The Holy One left glory and came as a man to this earth. And he did it to die for you. He came to pay the price so that you would be cleansed. To rise again to guarantee that his work was finished. And you would be clothed in his righteousness. So you could come before him. 
So we freely can enter into him in prayer. We freely can, can be here to worship him because we are his. So as you do this this morning, you do this as his children. You do what God prepared ahead of time through Christ as he sat with his own disciples. To take of the bread, to share in understanding that he died. That he, his flesh was broken for you. To share in the blood that he shed the day that he hung on the cross for us. And we do that to declare him. To declare the Lord. To show our love for him. And one day, he will once again drink with us together in glory. So as we do this this morning, do this as we think of those things that he in all his holiness came to die for us, sinful men. <coughs> Gracious Father, we're grateful for your love and the things that you do for us on an everyday basis. But we are most grateful for sending Jesus Christ. For his willingness to come and die for us. And we pray that as we would partake today, we remember how absolutely amazing this is. That you would love us so much that you would come as a man to die for us. Thank you, Lord. As we do this together, help us to do it in glorifying you. And we'll praise you in Christ's name.
reminding us of this. He reminds us the night that the Christ was betrayed. He was passing it on and he said, and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're grateful, Lord, for your love for us. As we think of you coming and actually dying for us, living that perfect life, the Lamb who was sacrificed and, and shed his blood for us, that we might be cleansed, whiter than snow. Thank you for doing that as we partake of this. Might we do it rejoicing in what you have done for us and that you also rose to guarantee this work that it was finished. Help us to rejoice in you this time in Christ's name. same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes drink the altar.
Thank you, Lord, for saving. 